thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we are continuing our study of the book of Leviticus, focusing on chapter 26. In in this chapter, God is now closing the terms of this covenant that he has, that is instituting with Israel. And the covenant began all the way back in Exodus when God called Moses and told him to go and tell Pharaoh and allow his people to be set free. That's the beginning. And here we come to the closure. And that closure is structured as a series of blessings and curses. Blessings if you obey the covenant. Curses if you don't. Tonight, we're going to focus on the blessings. And next week, we're going to go through the curses. So, I am skipping verses 1 and 2, which are really a close, uh, they're really verses that close the pr- previous chapter. We begin our reading in verses 3, verse 3 and 2.13. This is the topic of today. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, Then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and your threshing shall last to the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full, and dwell in your land securely. And I will give Peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove evil beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. And you shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. And I will have regard for you, and make you fruitful, and multiply you, and will confirm my covenant with you. And you shall eat, and eat, and you shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. And I will make my abode among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you forth out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves and I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. It is interesting, actually very interesting, that as I was reading today's gospel for the Mass in the Latin Rite, I came upon the following readings which were selected for uh, the reading today. This is taken from the book of Sirach, chapter 35, verse 1 through 15. And I thought it was interesting, it was, it was apropos to read that reading in a psalm because it is a commentary in the book of Sirach on the proper way to understand the law. And I hope that as I read this, the words will resonate better after all the study we've done and you start to see some of the fruits of your, the time and effort you put into the study here that it kind of opens scripture for you. And also to confirm that what I've been sharing with you isn't just my own personal opinion, but it is truly in the spirit of the church and in the way that the Israelites themselves understood the law. Here's from the book of Sirach. To keep the law is a great oblation, and he who observes the commandments sacrifices a peace offering. So observe how he understands the whole sacrificial system. He sees beyond the sacrifices that are offered something much deeper. And he's realizing that the inner movement of the soul, keeping the law, observing the commandments are pleasing to God. They're sacrifices. So he's already seeing beyond, which is something Jesus is going to complete and sublimate and make so much more powerful when we join all that to his suffering. Here you cannot yet do that, at least not explicitly. It is implicitly joined to Jesus' suffering because every man and every woman is saved through the cross. Hmm? In works of charity, one offers fine flour. And when he gives alms, he presents his sacrifice of praise. The refrain, to refrain from evil pleases the Lord. And to avoid injustice is an atonement. observe how everything is is structured in terms of those sacrifices that we have studied. Appear not before the Lord empty-handed, for all that you offer is in fulfillment of the precepts. For all that you offer is in fulfillment of the precepts. He's saying, there is offering required from you to fulfill the precepts, but then do not appear before the Lord empty-handed, do more. More than one, what the law is prescribing. Right? In our case, that means when we go to Mass, we're not just going to Mass to fulfill our Sunday obligation, so to speak, check, but we have something to offer. We brought something with us. All those little things that we've done during the week joined to Jesus' suffering as an offering that we bring to the altar. Yeah? Works of charity. The just man's offering enriches the altar... And rises as a sweet odor before the Most High. There you go. Now that was true about the Old Old Testament's altar. It is still true about our altar. The just man's offering. So you have to be in a state of grace for your offering to be accepted. Because as you know, if you're not in a state of grace, no prayer of yours will be heard other than the prayer for, for forgiveness. A prayer of 
repentance. That's the only prayer that God will hear. Otherwise, all the prayers are not heard. So you have to be in a state of grace for that to work. The just man's sacrifice is most pleasing, nor will it ever be forgotten. Imagine that. Your small, itsy-bitsy sacrifices that you did during the day will never be forgotten. Ever. That means they will be remembered in heaven. That's part of your glory. In generous spirit, pay homage to the Lord. Be not sparing of free will gifts. With each contribution, show a cheerful countenance and pay your tithes in a spirit of joy. Give to the Most High as He has given to you, generously according to your means. For the Lord is one who always repays, and He will give back to you sevenfold. That's the covenant. Right there. And that's part of the blessing we're going to talk about right now. You can't outdo God in generosity. Whatever you do, He will give back to you sevenfold. But offer no bribes, there he, these he does not accept. Trust not in sacrifice of the fruit of extortion, for he is a God of justice who knows no favorites. Though not unduly partial toward the weak, yet he hears the cry of the oppressed. He is not deaf to the wail of the orphan, nor to the widow when she pours out her complaint. Do not the tears that stream down her cheek cry out against him that causes them to so that is really what is not found yet in Leviticus because Leviticus is simply telling Israel how they must act formally it, it, it's almost like the, the rubric for the mass right? it doesn't carry all the subjective experience of how you live the law here this commentary of Sirach bring that up to our attention and make us realize Leviticus isn't just a dry set of laws, but beyond that is the, the lived experience of faith that is that will be the response of the Israelites, those who fear the Lord, those who have the spirit of piety in them that is being embodied here in Sirach. And in the Psalms we read this, Gather my faithful ones before me, gather my faithful ones before me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens proclaim his justice, for God himself is the judge. Hear my people, and I will speak. Israel, I will testify against you. God, your God, am I. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you, for your burnt offerings are before me always. Now, offer to God. Praise as your sacrifice. Offer to God praise as your sacrifice. What does that mean? It means that when you're hurting, praise the Lord. That's your sacrifice. And that is your filial spirit acting in you. And that is your love of God and your trust in Him. That you praise Him in the middle of difficulties. In the middle of trials. That you see 
those trials as the veil before the tabernacle. That you see those trials as the royal doorway leading you to Him. And that you will trust Him. Not just as in with a grumbling spirit. Okay, Lord, I'm, you know, I got all these taxes to pay and I have all these things that are happening to me and my, I got a fl- tire flat and, and I'm, but fine, I'll just do what you say. Right? That's the older brother's spirit, right? Talking to the father. I've always obeyed you and did everything you, you wanted me to do, but never once have you given me anything to, right? But that son of yours, not my brother, that son of yours, that's the grumbling spirit. This is the spirit of the guy who does everything God wants, but there is no praise in him. You understand? Offer to God praise as your sacrifice. So here's a little exercise now. Try to put that in practice in your life. Every one of us have areas of anxiety. Every one of us has news that we find disconcerting that are a source of disquiet for us. Right? Think, pick those three things that are, to you are major. Whatever they may be. Maybe it's the violence in the Middle East. Maybe it is the state of the nation. Maybe it's the deficit. Maybe it's the economy. Something. Then in your own life, there are events and things that are happening right now which can also cause you to be confused or angry or upset or cause pain in your life. Right, so p- take a piece of paper tonight when you go home. Jot down the three top things that bug you in the world. Jot down the three top things that bug you in your own life. And then on the third column, jot down the name of the three people who bugs you the most. Okay? And then I want you to take these, these nine things and turn to God. And then for each one of those to praise God. Lord, I praise you for the war in Iraq. Doesn't that sound weird? It does. It sounds so weird. You see, because we have our sense of justice already established. We know what to praise God for, what not to praise God for. You you notice? So when you say that, it opens your mind to realize that, number one, you don't know everything. Number two, there is meaning behind what is happening beyond us. Number three, everything in the world works for the greater glory of God. And when you praise Him for this, you're praising Him because this is going to be for the greater glory of God and not your glory. It suddenly starts to move your heart from being centered in you to centered in God. It teaches you to start thinking like God thinks, not like you think. In, and, and, uh, and what will happen, the recipro- reciprocal movement when you do that, because this is a conversation, is that the Holy Spirit will start to give you His peace and His abiding joy in spite of everything that is happening around you. Where do we get that from? Where does it happen in Scripture? I don't want you to think I'm just making that up. Who had that exact same trial? There's Job, but even in the New Testament, closer to us. Saint? Saint Paul. Saint Paul. He had trials that found too hard for him. 
and he wanted God to remove them. What was God's answer? What did he tell him? My grace is sufficient unto you. And where sins abound, grace superabound. Do you see that? Can you see that in those events, in these people that bug you? That is a true sacrifice of praise. I praise you, Lord, for these things. And now you open your mind and your heart and you ask, Here I am, Lord. What do you want me to do? If these things should not be mine to worry about, take them away. If they are, what do you want me to do? That is a true filial spirit. And that is a spirit of sacrifice. And your praise is truly an offering that you give God. You understand? Keep your prayers, keep your questions till later because I really need to go through a lot of material today. So, try it. See what happens. Okay? All right. Now, here's how this whole thing resounds or echoes in, this, in the Gospels because the church has aligned all these readings for us for a good reason. This is taken, therefore, from St. Mark 10, 28-31. Peter began to say to Jesus, We have given up everything and followed you. Peter is very realistic. Right? Very realistic. Stating a fact. We've given up everything and followed you. Jesus said, He replies back, Amen. I say to you, there is no one who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children. House, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, lands for my sake. How many have I counted? Yeah. Think coincidental that Jesus has seven things? Yeah. And let's go back to the blessings earlier and you will see the complete correlation, right? But notice, half of them, if not most, are family. House, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, or lands, for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive a hundred times more now in this present age. Why a hundred? We say seven, we have a hundred. What is a hundred? A hundred is ten times Ten. Ten is symbolic for completion. Right? Jesus doesn't say a thousand. He says a hundred. It would be a really interesting study on that. Why does he pick? Because a thousand would have been ten times ten times ten. Right? He's a perfect. But here, it's a hundred. Well, actually, I'll tell you right away. Because more now in this present age. That's why. That's why it's not a thousand. Because he's talking about your life right now. Hmm? Okay, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. Yeah, with persecutions. And eternal life in the age to come. There you go. So, you have to realize, like Peter does, that when you praise the Lord, back to what I was telling you earlier, there is something also coming your way. We have to be realistic about this. Not, we're not doing it just for ourselves, but we realize also God, who is generous, will also take care of us. He will take care of our needs. He will bless us. That trans- transitions now over into this study tonight. 
So, in this study, this chapter 26 is known as the blessings and curses of Leviticus, even though the words blessings and curses do not appear in the chapter at all. But uh, we still call them such because of Deuteronomy 28, where they are actually listed as blessings and curses. The, this chapter is an exhortation encouraging the fulfillment of all the rules and regulations laid down. It promises blessings on those who are faithful to God and threatens punishment on those who fail to obey. But the key to the whole thing is to remember that obedience isn't formal obedience. I did this whole thing and I'm done. It is obedience from the heart. It is a joyful obedience. Yeah? It is a reminder that God's justice will apply to each according to his deeds. The same truth is taught in the New Testament in a different way. So, for instance, we have references to the last judgment in Matthew 25, 31-46. And also, we have uh, the, the whole imagery of the book of life in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 5, chapter 13, chapter 17, chapter 20. And I'll refer you to the study we've done on Revelation already which is on the website Corbono, and where we see the names of the elect written as the consequences of what man does during his earthly life. Because that, these consequences, what you do right now, the consequences of these activities will follow you after the grave. That's the only thing you can take with you, what you do now. The effect of these events is what you can take with you, and that's it. So, one Observation, Leviticus 26 must be read in direct conjunction to the Jubilee. We've talked about the entire festival last week. And the Jubilee, which is what? The Jubilee is the 50th year. Right? It's the year that comes after 7 times 7. It's the year of joy. So, these blessings and curses need to be seen through the lens of the Jubilee, because they're not only meant for a short period of time. They're meant to regulate the life of Israel throughout the generations. And the Jubilee is that time which is the sort of a mini-fulfillment, because at the time of Jubilee, those who were slaves are freed. Those who lost their lands have the lands back. It's a, truly a year of um, rejoicing. It is a year of that, that sort of echoes the exodus because you are, again, freed from all these shackles that held you back. That was the meaning of the Jubilee, and the church carried that forward, therefore, by celebrating different Jubilees, moments of celebration. Now, let's put that in context. In the ancient Near East, it was customary for legal treaties to conclude with passages containing blessings upon those who observed the enactments and curses upon those who did not. And they're not legal treaties, really, they're covenants. So the international treaties of the second millennium B.C. regularly included such sections as part of the text, with the list of curses greatly outnumbering the promises of blessing. This pattern in the Old Testament occurs in Exodus 23, 25, Deuteronomy 28, Joshua 24. The maledictions of the Mesopotamian legal text or the curses in the treaties of the Aramean Hittites and Assyrians were threats uttered in the names of the gods, which had acted as witnesses to the covenant. That these threats could be implemented was part of the superstitious belief of people in the ancient Near East, and could have had some coincidental basis in fact. For the Israelites, however, there was no doubt that God, that the God who brought the mighty act of deliverance to the Red Sea, 
will indeed carry out all that he had promised, whether for good or ill. Obedience to his commands is the certain way to obtain a consistent outpouring of blessings, whereas continued disobedience is a guarantee of f- future punishment. Then, my friends, this is the tragedy of our generation. We live in a time of unprecedented technological advancement and knowledge. Our understanding of nature, of space, of the cosmos, of the infinitesimally small has never been as big and as rich as it is today. And it is an, um, an era of utter ignorance to the dictates of God and the divine ways. We have somehow convinced ourselves that God is passive. God is in the background. And all God can do is sigh at all the ill that happens in the world. We've convinced ourselves that God is so passive that He has no control of what is going on. God has lost control. And the the proof is that whether it's in our own lives or in the life of the nation or in the life of the world, we do not come to God and say, what is your will? What are you trying to tell me in the events of my life today? Because I know you are in command. What are you trying to tell us in the life of our nation and of the world? Because you are in command. Because you are the Lord of Lords. You are the King of Kings. And nothing that is happening happens outside of your will. The fear of the Lord, the virtue of piety is lost. And when that happens, men act recklessly. Because he thinks he can dictate what is good and what is evil. So before we get into the details of these uh, blessings, let's hear what St. Caesarus of Arles said in his sermon 105. He's a 4th, 5th century uh, bishop from France. If we faithfully and diligently pay attention to it, brethren, everything which was promised to the Jews is fulfilled spiritually in us. For the blessings of God which they received on earth, we have obtained in our souls through the grace of baptism. Therefore, with His help, let us labor with all our strength so that we may be able to receive God's blessings and avoid His curses. So this is to, to this bishop and the people of his time, which lived in the, four, uh, uh, the, the years of uh, the 5th century, it was no, they did not have a difficulty in talking about God's blessings and God's curses. God, to them, was fully in command. But because of the hubris that we have in thinking that our scientific understanding pushes God away from our horizon, we now decided that we can safely say that God blesses only, and He, other than that, He has absolutely nothing to do with what was going on. Okay? And again, I will remind you of the words of Our Lady in Fatima, do not offend the Lord God anymore, for he is much too offended. And God himself told them, Our Lady told us, that he will punish the world with another war. He will punish the world with another war, and that was the Second World War. And Our Lady was very explicit, God will punish the world with another war. And if you can't, if you don't struggle with this, then you're missing on all the blessings that God wants to bestow upon you by understanding His justice. 
you have to struggle with it because to our eyes and minds, it sounds unjust. So therefore, we need to purify our intention, our conscience, and our way of thinking for moving away from a human way of understanding uh, justice to a divine way, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Only then will you be able to reach the true peace that God has promised every one of us. Let us ask this question first. What is a blessing? What does the word blessing mean? In its widest acceptation, this word has a variety of meanings. It has taken in a sense that is synonymous with praise. So, thus, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall, be, shall always be in my mouth. That's taken from Psalm 33, verse 1. So when we say, blessed be the Lord, well, what are we saying? We're praising Him, right? It is used to express or wish or desire, a desire, I'm sorry, it is used to express a wish or desire that all good fortune, especially of spiritual or supernatural kind, may go with the person or thing. As when David says, blessed art thou, and it shall be well with thee. Again, taken from the Psalms. It signifies the sanctification or dedication of a person or thing to some sacred purpose. Now we're closer to the meaning of when, that, that God uses when he says, I'm blessing you. Okay? Blessing in our minds, more often than not, means I've won the jackpot. In our minds, blessings is associated with the satisfaction of the top ten things that we want. So, here again, we need to purify our conscience. Nowhere in Scripture does God, does God says, when I'll bless you, I'll give you everything you want. He says, I'll give you what you need. Yeah? So, it is very important that we dissociate in our mind the, our lists of the things we want from God's blessing. Because that list may not be according to His will. So we have to purify our intent. Especially when we drew up that list, the way Calvin, in Calvin and Hobbes, drew up his list for Christmas. He had about 100 pages written, all the things he wanted for Christmas. He's a eight-year-old, no, six, six, six-year-old boy, and his top list is an atomic bomb launcher. Oftentimes, we act like him, our top ten list. We're asking things which are not good necessarily for us. Why? Because we've never engaged God in that conversation. You see? So, you have to train yourself to separate your list of wants from Blessing. The first meaning of blessing is dedication. You're set apart. You're part of God's family. You're adopted into His family. You're sons and daughters of God. That is the blessing you receive at baptism. Original sin is taken away from your soul, and you're now part of God's family. We have to exercise this blessing for it to transform our life. It is available to us, but we have to make use of it. Now, the last thing is that um, the last kind of meaning you will find is it designates a gift. So now man, for instance, addresses Eliseus, I beseech thee, therefore, take a blessing of thy servant in 2 Kings 6.15. But the key for us 
is to understand that blessing is really about being set apart, being dedicated to God, right? Now, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, there is a certain number of paragraphs that talk about blessing. In 2626, paragraph 2626, blessing expresses the basic movement of Christian prayer. It is an encounter between God and man. So there you have a much better definition, a more active definition of the word blessing. So when you meet God, that you're blessed. It is a conversation between you and God. That is a blessing. In blessing, God's gift and man's acceptance of it are united in dialogue with each other. Oftentimes we want to treat God like uh, He's UPS or Federal Express. Comes with a gift, gives a piece of paper, sign here, we sign here, we take this thing, he goes, we, and we stay with the gift. We're done. Notice? We just want God to deliver the goods, but not be part of the conversation. Not be there when we open the goods. Notice? Because God blesses, the human heart can in return bless the one who is the source of every, every blessing. So, a true blessing leads you to bless God in return. When you live it the right way, you return the blessing, right? 26, 27, two fundamental forms express this movement. Our prayer ascends in the Holy Spirit through Christ to the Father. We bless Him for having blessed us. It implores the grace of the Holy Spirit that descends through Christ from the Father. He blesses us. So observe the fundamental dialogue that happens in a real blessing. Central to this notion of blessing is this dialogue with God. Our prayer ascends, the Holy Spirit, through Christ, God the Father, and descends back through the same channel. And obviously, it is <clears throat> through the liturgy that these blessings, this communication, this flow, works best. 26.28 Adoration is the first attitude of man, acknowledging that he is a creature before his creator. This is easily said than done. And this is perhaps one of the biggest problems we have. This is one of the most inner vice that plagues all of us. We call it pride. Because pride is nothing else than the rejection of the notion that we are a creature. Pride wishes to reject the notion that our destiny is not in our own hands. That we're not makers of our own destiny. That at the end of the day, we are contingent beings. We are beings whose life depends on the will of someone else whom we cannot control. We are creatures. And many of our woes, many of our problems, many of our difficulties, and a lot of our sufferings come from the fact that we do not want to accept the fact that we are a creature. We have a real hard time with it because of original sin. But adoration is the first attitude of man acknowledging that he is a creature before his creator. It exhausts the greatness of the Lord who made us and the almighty power of the Savior who sets us free from evil. All right. So these are the interior. This is the interior behavior we must have in order to truly understand all these blessings and the curses we're going to hear about next week. 1077, St. Paul. Blessed be the God 
and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. He destined us before Him in love to be His sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise, so He did all this, why? To the praise of His glorious grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. He did all that, that we may praise His glorious grace. We are creatures destined to praise the Lord. That is our destiny. That is why we were created. And in the praise that we give God, we exist. Descartes had said, I think, therefore I am. And the church responds, I praise, therefore I am. It is only to the extent that we can praise God that we truly exist. Because then we share in His divine life, which is grace. Okay. Blessing 1078. Blessing is a divine and life-giving action. Divine and life-giving action. The source of which is the Father. His blessing is both word and gift. Meaning, the blessing of God is operative. It transforms us. When applied to man, the word blessing means adoration and surrender to his Creator in thanksgiving. Adoration and surrender to his Creator in thanksgiving. This is how we we praise the Lord. This is how we bless him. 1079, from the beginning until the end of time, the whole of God's work is a blessing. I want to repeat that. From the very beginning, from the beginning until the end of time, the whole of God's work is a blessing. You have to rise above the difficulties, the concerns, the evil, everything you see in the world which is there, which is true, which is heartbreaking, which is hard. Right? I'm not denying and I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm not saying, oh, it doesn't matter. It, no, it matters a great deal. But, so we cannot not see that. That would be a big mistake if we said, oh, everything is okay. God's will is being done. Yeah, life is good. That would be a big mistake. So I'm, not, I'm never saying that. What I'm saying to you is that you cannot just see that You cannot see that apart from God's work. That even all this evil will still yield God's glory. In ways we cannot understand right now. So you can't just look at God's glory and praise and His work and ignore everything else. Because that can lead you to passivism and you do nothing. But you can't just look at all the evil in the world and think that God is passive. Because then, again, you're missing half the picture. You must hold both. But they're not equal. No matter how evil the world gets, the grace of God superabounds. There is victory. You have to keep that in front of you at all times. That's the blessing. From the very beginning, God blesses all living, be- living beings, especially men and women. 1080. And then finally, 1082, in the church's liturgy, 
the divine blessing is fully revealed and communicated. 1082 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. All right. Actually, let me just read this to you from 1083, because it's pretty important, and it fits within the study we've been doing so far. 1083, the dual dimension of the Christian liturgy as a response of faith and love to the spiritual blessings the Father bestows on us is thus evident. On the one hand, the Church, united with her Lord, and in the Holy Spirit, blesses the Father for His inexpressible gift in her adoration, praise, and thanksgiving. On the other hand, until the consummation of God's plan, the Church never ceases to present to the Father the offering of His own gifts and to beg Him to send the Holy Spirit upon that offering, upon herself, upon the faithful, and upon the whole world, so that through communion in the death and resurrection of Christ, the priest, and by the power of the Spirit, these divine blessings will bring forth the fruits of life to the praise of His glorious grace. So, what is the bridge between God's plan and the world's evil? How do we conquer the evil of the world with God's grace? The liturgy. That's your bridge. The liturgy. Because when you go before God in the prayers, you acknowledge who He is, you bless Him for who He is, for all the graces that He gives you, therefore you acknowledge that He is Lord and Master of the whole world, and then you petition Him for all that is happening in the world, that the Spirit inspires you to do, and God in response sends His blessings through. But as we said before, and we continue to repeat, if in order for you to be able to have an effective prayer, you yourself must be in a state of grace. Therefore, you are going to, give to confession to purify yourself. And notice in that case, confession can also be seen as an act of charity towards your brothers and sisters. Because when you go to confession, you are now a channel of God's grace. But if, but if 75%... Or 60% of the majority of the Catholics are contracepting, therefore living outside of God's grace, objectively, all those channels are blocked. How will then that grace flow through to the world? How do you expect to stop that evil out there? Because what is that evil? Evil is what? Evil is not a thing. God does not create evil. God creates all things. So therefore, if God creates all things, how come... There's evil. What was evil? Evil is not a thing. It is the lack of something. The lack of what? The lack of grace. Well, why is grace receding from the world? And in a spiritual world, there is no neutral. It's not like you have evil, neutral, good. There is no neutral. Why? Because of the demons. Right? They fill up that space that grace leaves behind. Immediately. You understand? Well, what do you expect? If grace is receding, what do you expect the world to do? To act uprightly? Original sin is there. Original sin leads us, by definition, to vice. The only thing that counteracts this, corrects it, heals it, and sanctifies us is grace. Yeah? You and I, as Catholics, have access to the fount of grace, which is Christ, through the Mass. But if we are blocked, are no longer channels of grace, how will that grace reach the world? That's a Syrophoenician woman that you've heard me mention multiple times. right? Yes, Lord, but even the dogs can eat from the scrapes that fall from the table of the children. What if the children are not eating? The dogs are starving. And if they're starving, what are they going to do? 
They're going to eat whatever they can find. They're going to eat each other. Yeah? Then therefore, logically, none of us should be surprised at what the world is doing. They're hungry for the truth. They're hungry for God's grace. They're not getting it. How do you expect they're going to behave? Do you understand? This is the economy of salvation. This is how that spiritual warfare works. But somehow we got confused by thinking that the technology and science is going to fix this for us. And I speak like a guy who has a PhD in computer science. I love science. For its proper purpose. Not as the fix all of our problems. Certainly not as a builder of morality because it isn't. That's unjust to science. Yeah? This is what blessing is all about. Okay. And that's why the Mass is so important. So, that leads us to the next question. You, read, you heard the God blessed Israel if they follow His commandments. So, naturally, the next question should be, how much? How many? You know in every nation, you're not going to have everybody following the commandments. Some will, some won't. So how do we know when God blesses and when He doesn't? How do blessings actually work? The Lord promised to bless the people if they are faithful, if they were faithful. But how many needed to be faithful? How much obedience was expected before the blessings were poured out? Well, we have one data point, one literal data point from Sodom, because of the bartering that Abraham did with God. If there were ten justs, ten, that would, that would do it. Ten. As long, here's the key though, as long as a remnant had an influence for righteousness. As long as a remnant had an influence for righteousness. Judgment would not fall. Okay? So as long as a nation, as long as, a, as is, is still producing fruits, is still moving people towards God, as, to, as, as long as there's still a struggle, God will withhold His hand. Up to a point, I suspect. But God will withhold it. But the point is, how do we influence our own culture? How do we influence our own parish? How do we influence the people around us? What can we do? What can we do? All right, so the blessings. If you walk in my statutes, verse 3. So literally, if you walk in my laws. This conceives of God's laws and commandments as the right path of life. This statement sets the tone for the entire blessing. Right? And observe my commandments and do them. God says, if you do those things, then I will grant you. Notice the word, I will grant. It is not your right. It's a privilege. Hmm? I will grant you rain, rains in their season. Okay, Israel, rainfall is limited to a fixed season of the year, right? So, 
for God to grant them rains in their season, he must grant them the rain to fall at the right time and not at the wrong time. You need the right quantity of rain and it has to fall at the right time. Right? What are we talking about when we hear rain in their season? What do you, how can you say that today in our economy? What would God grant us? Jobs, but something equivalent to rain. Good climate, right? The right climate, right? That's one. What else? Yes, produce, but also energy, right? Energy. We can't do anything without electricity today. You know that, right? There's nothing we can do. We cannot, we cannot even almost do agriculture without electricity today. Electricity in everywhere, distribution of water, distribution of uh, gas, treatments of uh, waste, you name it, electricity is there. It's everywhere. Right? So God will say, I will grant you electricity in its season. So, so the point is, it's the economy. Right? It's the economy. It's not the romantic scene of, oh, you know, rain falling gently, I'm singing in the rain type thing. That's not what is implied here. What's implied is that you'll get what you need for the economy. Yeah? All right. Now, we have a problem with that, though, right? So this is taken from uh, uh, homily 16 on Leviticus by origin. Here's the question that he asks. Let us first ask the Jews and those who think the, these things must be understood simply or physically. If this rain is given as a reward for labors to those who keep the commandments, how is this one and the same rain given in their times to those who do not keep the commandments. So let's say Rich has a field, and Rich is keeping the commandments. And Daniel has a field adjacent to Rich's, but he's not keeping the commandments. What God is going to do? Send rain over Rich's field, and Daniel gets nothing? Christ himself says that, right? Rains on the just and the unjust. How do we reconcile both? Well... Listen to what Origen says, but I think only as part of the answer. As a reward for labors of those who keep the commandments, how is this one and the same rain given in their times to those who do not keep the commandments and the whole world profits by the common rain given by God? For it rains upon the just and the unjust. Matthew 5.45 There will not be an uncommon reward for these who will, keep, who will have kept the commandments. See therefore that although the Jews... Do not give assent to the words of our Lord Jesus. Nevertheless, you who are judged by his name and are called Christian ought to believe him when he says that his heavenly Father reigns, this common reign, on the just and the unjust. And you ought not think he would separate for the just this choice portion which he also made common with the unjust. And the point of origin is therefore there is more to this blessing and it's spiritual. And the reign that God is talking about is the grace that he will grant you when he blesses you. And origin is absolutely correct. Right? We go from a literal meaning of scripture right, to a spiritual meaning of scripture. However, I think also there is a secondary meaning, no less important, which we've already alluded to earlier, when we said that when we go to Mass as Catholics, and we offer sacrifice and praise to God, when in the state of grace, God reciprocates by a flow of grace, which we then carry forth into the world. Therefore, those amongst us who are living according to his word are blessed, but so are the ones who don't. You see that? Why? 
we bring it to them. Why does God wishes His grace is brought even to the unjust? He wants to save everyone. He wants to save everyone. Yes. Why does He going to? Why is He going to punish? Because you see, the graces that He gives us are acts of mercy provided we, who said we follow Your commandments, are faithful to Him. But when we are not faithful to Him, we're mocking His name. And God's justice requires, therefore, this punishment. Because His name shall never be mocked. That's why. Is that making sense? Yeah, that's why. So, the key here is that physically, everybody's going to profit. Physically, everybody's going to profit. But the spiritual gift that He gives... To the believers, he does not give to the unbelievers. Hence, they may profit here, but they will not profit afterwards. Because God is just. They may be industrious, they may be uh, uh, clever, they may be creative, they may be doing different things. And God provides them their reward, like Jesus said. Of the Pharisee who comes, and he offers this big bag of money, and everybody sees him. And they praise him. Or like the Pharisee who fasts and makes sure everybody knows that he's fasting and everybody sees him. Jesus says, Amen, Amen, I say to you, he received his reward. God is just. He did an effort, he must be rewarded. He is rewarded. But his reward is right here. You understand? The earth shall yield its produce. So, in our case, we might say that uh, uh, the economy shall grow at a healthy rate. I want, to, I want to keep you focused on the economic side of thing, not the romantic side of thing. Okay? Not to say that the romantic, I mean, the beautiful side of the, world, the, the, the earth producing and, you know, the rain coming is, is to be ignored. But that's not the primary meaning. It's not the primary intent in those blessings. Your threshing shall overtake the vintage. There will be so much grain to thresh, that the threshing will con- continue into late summer when the vines are picked, an activity called batsir. Although, okay, um, so it's, it's essentially there's so much for you to pick up that by the time you're done, it's time for the vintage. Again, it's, you're overflowing. Now, why do you think God wishes to give us so much? What's the primary reason that God wishes to give us so much? That's it. That's exactly it, right? He's giving you so much, so what? You become a source of blessing for those who do not have. So that they may also receive that call of salvation. So perhaps you might want to add this as a little exercise as well. What did God give you? And how do you thank Him for all that He has given you? You shall eat your fill of bread and dwell securely in your land. So, we talked about, first, economic growth in general, but now it's more specific. You, every one of you, shall eat your fill in the land. There aren't going to be anybody who will starve. So, so far we've talked, in a macroeconomic sense, the land will produce, Israel as a whole will have enough. But now, individually, every one of you will eat your fill. And you will dwell securely. So, economic growth, plenty for everyone, 
security. Okay? Now, obviously, security is common to many biblical blessings. And we read also in chapter 25, verse 18 and 19, that the proper observers of the sabbatical year will also be rewarded by domestic security. So security here is not, um, it's not related to warfare or lack of war. It is domestic security. No one will come and rob you or kill you or do things to you. It's just domestic security. I'm hoping you're taking a list of those things and you're thinking already about where we are in this nation against each of these axes. How we're behaving overall. In terms of economy, in terms of personal wealth, in terms of internal security. Okay. Then I will grant peace in the land. And no sword shall cross your land. Now this is external security. Yeah. So cross, a sword that crosses the land is a rare way of depicting the ravages of war. In the Old Testament is only found in Ezekiel, which is apocalyptic. In Ezekiel 14, 17. And we find it also in Revelation. The, Lord sweep, the, 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 the sword sweeping the land. Hence, it is an indication primarily to the way God rules the world. His sword will cross the land. Right? Our Lady, again, God will punish the world with another war. You shall give chase to your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. You shall not suffer from war, but your enemies will. Five of you, five of you shall give chase to a hundred in Deuteronomy 32.29, we read, Were they wise, they would think upon this, gain insight into their future. How could one have routed a thousand, or two put ten thousand to flight, unless the rock had said, sold them? The Lord had given them up. This is echoed in Joshua 23.10. Therefore, um, Gideon's 300 men put to flight the great army of the Midianites in Judges 8.22, and the Maccabees destroyed vast numbers with a small force. And in history, for instance, we have the Battle of uh, Lepanto, and also the defense of um, Vienna against the onslaught of the Ottomans, where small armies were able to to defeat uh, an army that is about ten times larger than they, what they were, right? Having prayed all night, having asked Our Lady's intercession, I will look with favor upon you. When God turns toward His people, they are blessed with victory and prosperity. But there is more to it than that, because so far what we've seen is that we have economic growth, we have food for all, we have interior peace, we have exterior peace. We have strength against our enemies. These are all, so far, physical blessings. But now, I will look with favor upon you. Right now, we're transitioning into the spiritual realm where God wishes to bless us. There's an echo of this in the Gospels when we hear the Father say, This is my boast, beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Right? And also in the salutation of Gabriel to Our Lady, hail full of grace, 
which literally would mean hail most favored one. God looked with favor upon her. God filled her with grace. And I will maintain my covenant with you. Now, what is maintain my covenant? God's covenant cannot be abrogated, can never be broken. Once established, it is sealed with a divine seal, and nothing can break that seal. And God, obviously, does not contradict himself. So what does it mean, I maintain my covenant with you? It means that all these terms of the covenant, all these blessings, I will maintain year after year. I am the source, and all these things will happen to you if you obey my laws. Notice, the laws that God gave in Leviticus are of two kinds. There are liturgical laws, and then there are moral laws. How you sacrifice, how you um, uh, worship God, and how you behave morally. If you do but these things, all the rest of it, the economy, the security, the, the, the absence of poverty, the interior security, exterior security, all of that will be given onto you if you do those things. You worship God in spirit and in truth, and you live a virtuous life. God will take care of the rest. We flipped everything upside down. I'm talking we, but us, we Catholics. We think the world depends on us. We have to do things. We get, up, we get um, uh, overly concerned with what is happening out there, and we think activism is going to solve the problem, which actually, in fact, it makes it worse. Right? It is a, a life deeply rooted in prayer that actually makes miracles. And if you want uh, Exhibit A, look at Mother Teresa. Do, how many do you know who have accomplished what Mother Teresa has been able to accomplish? How many amongst us here built all these monasteries and started all this order and helped so many people out in the world? And yet, what is the root of Mother Teresa's life? Prayer in the Mass. And she's far more fruitful than millions of Catholics put together. Her impact on the world is far greater than the impact of millions of Catholics put together. One tiny little women. Why? He does everything through her. You shall eat all grain long stored. The Hebrews, the Hebrew reads Yashan Noshan, literally very old. A similar thought is expressed in 2522 with respect to the sabbatical year. Its observance, including the special provisions for the poor, will result in the reward of an abundance of grain. And in a Septuagint, actually, the Septuagint version of the Old Testament reads, You shall eat the old of old, and you shall bring out the old from the face of the new. And we therefore hear the echo of that in the Gospel of St. Matthew, when Christ says, Therefore each scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Right? Christ sublimates that to talk about what you bring out meaning the Holy Spirit will bring in what is old, the Old Testament, what is new, the New Testament, put them together. You have so much that even the old that you have will not decay. Those are the blessings that God wishes for all of us. And now he says, I will establish my abode in your midst. Now what, what does this bring us to? Brings us back to? Obviously, Eden. Right? Eden. I will establish my abode in your midst. And it's really a tabernacle. Mishkan in Hebrew is a tabernacle. 
or residence, and I will not spurn you. That is an interesting blessing. I will not spurn you. Notice how it's expressed in the negative. Not, I will adopt you. I will make you my own. I will not spurn you. So what is implied behind that is simply the fact that God will tolerate their presence. Why? Because the life of grace is not present yet. You see that? See how even the Old Testament, even the writer of the Old Testament had no idea of the coming of Christ and lack of written, confirms what Christ will teach later. Because I will not spurn you. That is all that God could do at that point because they did not have the life of grace inside of them. Jesus will change that when he speaks to his apostles in the Gospel of John and tells them, I no longer call you slaves or servants, but I call you friends. Right? And your father and my father. You're my brothers, you're my sisters, you're part of the family. Love each other as I have loved you. None of those words are spoken here. This is the extent of the Old Testament's covenant from the blessing standpoint that I will not spurn you. The primary image behind the word spurn is that of physical spoilage or filth. Right? So I will maintain you or protect you, but that's the extent of it. This is kind of important. And I will ev- be ever present in your midst. I will walk about, you, about in your midst. In a religious society, the presence and nearness of God are of vital concern, are contingent on the behavior of the people. The notion that God walks about is also conveyed in Nathan's oracle addressed to David. As we read in 2 Samuel 7, 6 and 7, From the day that I brought the people of Israel out of Egypt to this day, I have not dwelt in a house, but have moved about in tent and tabernacle, as I moved about wherever the Israelites went. And then finally, I will be your God and you shall be my people. I will be your God, you shall be my people. Right? This is, there is a marital language to this. And it defines the covenantal relationship between God and in Israel and serves as the legal terms of adoption. Thus we read once again in Nathan's Oracle in 2 Samuel 7.14, I will be a father to him, the Davidic king, and he shall be a son to me. The reverse of this pledge of adoption, expressing disapproval and rejection of Israel, is found in Hosea 1.9. For you are not my people, I will not be your God. Right? So it is the beginning of that institution that God will reassert with David and then will make, will, will make absolutely real with Christ. The adoption to God in the Sonship of Jesus Christ, which is obviously lacking here and we cannot have. And then finally, verse 13, who broke the bars of your yoke? The bars of the yoke were tied to the neck of a work animal by means of thongs. And in Jeremiah 28, 10, 13, we have a graphic description of a yoke on a human being. Breaking the yoke is a metaphor for liberation. The bars of Jeremiah's yoke are broken and thereby set him free. Yokes are still used in many parts of the Near East today and have not changed much since antiquity. A person who is subjugated upon whom a yoke is placed is bent over. Because when you have a yoke on you, you have to bend over. And when the yoke is removed, you can stand erect. And a Greek proverb says, Never was a slave's head right, but always crooked like his neck. And it's attributed to a Greek man named Menokius. 
So, you notice that the blessings essentially give Israel all the necessities of life. But now we have to ask ourselves, for what end? Why does God give Israel all the necessities of life? What is not yet spoken here as part of the blessings? Salvation. He gives them the necessities of life so that they can do what? They can continue their worship. You understand? That explains why in Abraham, in, in, um, in, um, in the covenant that God made with Abraham, in Genesis, there were actually two covenants. One, where Abraham gives to his descendant a very wide land, where the Arabs dwell today. That was given to Ishmael. And to Israel, he gave a very narrow strip of land, comparatively speaking. Why? Because the point is that I am not giving you a land so you may, may be mighty and powerful among the nations. I am giving you the land as an altar for sacrifice. The purpose of the land, the purpose of the economy that you're going to receive from me is to allow you to worship. Which, therefore, leave you with this final thought. In our modern society today, we think of two economic systems, or maybe three, communism, socialism, and capitalism. But in the social doctrine of the Catholic Church, there's a fourth one, there's not much spoken about, which is called familism. And that economies must be structured to support, help, and allow the families to thrive. Why? Because only when that happens, that the worship that is due to God can truly happen. Economies must be structured to allow us to worship. You understand? So then when you see the way our economy is structured today, and you see and you watch that all these things that are spoken of here are not given us and given to all, what do you conclude? What do you conclude? That these blessings that God is speaking of are simply not making it through. And if the blessings are not making it through, what is making it through? The curses, of which we'll speak next week. So let's finish with a word of prayer, and then we'll take some questions. Okay, questions. Yes. Yeah, I said three macro events that are of concern to you. Maybe the economy, maybe the, I don't know, something that is happening in the United States that is of concern to you, that is beyond your family, beyond your immediate reach, right? We all have some of those things that are on our minds. And pick three other events that are really immediately close to you. Right? Could be health, could be family, could be relationship, could be work, could be whatever. Right? And then pick three people with whom you have difficulties of some sort, issues, whatever. And then look at them as a gift instead of looking at them as a source of woe and anxiety. And then take it in prayer and meditation and see what happens. Make sense? Yes. Yeah, very good question. Should you say to someone who is sick, or going through difficulty, praise God. Yes and no. It really depends on their spiritual state. Some people are able to see the events of their lives as a gift. Others are not there yet. So my suggestion is to be prudent and first ascertain how 
these people are living that experience. If they're still in a state of being essentially dealing with it only as far as it concerns them, they may not be yet ready. So we may have to abstain from that. Right? That's how I would do it. But that, that's a very good observation. Thank you for bringing this up. Very good point. Yes. Yes. Very good question. If the unjust get also the blessing, why would they repent? They're getting the blessings that are happy, right? Correct. So there is another side to this that we have not really talked about. There's three things going on here. So it's a complex situation. The first one is that there are those who, when they receive the blessing, are touched and they might change. There are those who, when they receive the blessings, harden their hearts. Do not change. And then there are those who, because of the blessings that these people receive, may then have the opportunity to receive the blessings later because they're dependent of them. God will take all that into consideration. So we'll talk more about the second aspect of it next week. Yeah? Okay. You have a question? Very good. Absolutely. If you can encourage someone to offer up their sufferings, um, that's a wonderful thing, right? Because uh, um, I think it was Bishop Sheen who said there is so much suffering wasted in our hospitals, right? But also I will caution you that in some cases, some people are not able yet to even comprehend that. Uh, Some people may be in a state of depression, and they simply cannot be reached this way. Others may, may have to go through a mourning period. Their suffering is too intense. For instance, let me give you a simple example. Someone has a rock drop on his foot. If you come to him on that moment and tell him to offer up his suffering, I mean, don't get me wrong. If he's a saint and he's achieved that level of uh, control, he will say, praise the, God, praise the Lord. But otherwise... What might come out of his mouth on that moment may not be an expression of true praise. That's what I'm trying to say. Yes. So use your judgment. And above all, make sure you're listening first to what the people are saying. Yeah? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Can the blessings of of one generation be poured forth on the next? Absolutely. God says it in the scriptures. If you're faithful, I will bless you down your generation, a thousand generation down, meaning I'll continue to bless every generation as long as they don't break their, their covenant with me. Right? Which brings us to the communion of the saints. You, me, if, you, if you're wondering about the mystery of our election, how come we're saved? Or how come we're here to be saved, that is? That's what I meant. Be careful. Um, sometimes we may not even find an answer in our own lives. We may think of others who are not Catholics, who are not living their faith, but they behave better than we do in some ways. Why me and not them? Well, you might have somebody up there, a holy grandma, who went to Jesus and said, I want this one. And Jesus says, I'll give, it to, I'll give him to you. As simple as that. It defies, again, our sense of justice because we want everything to depend only on us. But if that was the case, why is it that when agreed we say, we believe? Notice, it's an act of faith, not we understand. Yeah? We believe in the communion of the saints. Because it defies our understanding. It requires an act of faith that God will say yes, even when we really don't deserve it. Because at the end of the day, 
who really deserves it? Right? Uh, I think so. Yes. Very good question. So if we are in a situation where someone has to abstain from intercourse for health reasons, why can't they, in this case, use contraception? Why do they have to abstain? If it's in the intention, how come I can't use contraception, right? And instead of just abstaining, here's why. Contraception is an intrinsic evil. NFP is not. Objectively, the tool itself is evil. And in God's eyes, we cannot, we cannot achieve a good using an evil means. That's why. Some people can use NFP for contraceptive purposes. They're using a good means for an evil end. Do you see the difference? Contraception is always evil. The difference is that in the case of NFP, you're still open to the working of the Holy Spirit. You're working with what God gave you. With contraception, you're taking control and you're, telling, you're asking the Holy Spirit to leave. It does not matter what they do. What matters is the objective act. So, for instance, I take a gun, I take a gun, and I walk in the room and I shoot blindly. I have no intention of killing anybody. Is that enough? Seven people are dead. But I didn't have any intention. I was just exercising my liberty of using a gun with no intention of killing anyone. Am I absolved by the law? No. In the case of contraception, the action itself is evil. Even if all my intention is good, I committed an evil, intrinsically evil act. And God will look at the act, and maybe my intention might diminish the punishment accorded to the act, but it doesn't nullify it. Do you understand? No, the right answer is you abstain. And in that abstaining, there is a gift that God has for them to deepen their love, which a contraception will steal from them. And you can tell her that if they were to contracept, they will feel the bitter effect of that for a very long time. All right? Yes. Uh, yes, so the question is, um, standing in line of the communion, some holy wine, the blood of our Lord is spilled on the floor. What is the proper procedure? My understanding, the proper procedure is that uh, the distribution of holy communion should be halted. Uh, the priest or the deacon should then take care of the situation first and then resume the distribution of communion. Yes. So where, does, where in Scripture, for instance, would we find... A reference made to angels praising the Lord unceasingly. I'll give you three references. Book of Isaiah, the vision he had when the Lord, when he saw the altar of the Lord and the cherubim and seraphim surrounding him. Book of Ezekiel, and then mostly book of Revelation. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Yes. Oh, no, okay, yes, Ecclesiasticus. Or the wisdom of Jesus, the son of Sirach. Okay, so His name was Jesus, he was the okay. son of Sirach. So, so Yeshu ben Sira. No, have nothing with Jesus Christ. No, no, no. Absolutely. Yes. Okay, very good. Very good. Very good. Very good. Very good. Thank you for bringing the question up. Question is, okay, so we hear in the book of Leviticus, if you do 
good things. If you follow my commandments, these blessings will come. If you don't, these curses will happen, right? But in the book of Job, here's you have a good man who's doing God's will, and all these bad, I put them into quote, things happen to him. And likewise, our Lord himself, in talking of the, the men who died because um, the tower fell upon them, specifies that this happened to them not because they were more evil than the other ones, right? How are we to understand all of this? So the first thing I'll point out to you is that this is a covenant, not a contract. The contract, if you say, I'm going to give you 10 pounds of apple for 10 bucks, if I don't bring the 10 pounds, you keep your 10 bucks. We can break a contract. A covenant is not revocable. We cannot, cannot break it. And a covenant is an exchange of people, not things. A contract is an exchange of things. This is a difference. Now, remember what we said earlier. What is good and what is evil? If someone has cancer, is that an evil? It depends what happens because of that cancer. What fruits the cancer will yield. If because of the cancer, that person is brought back to God and goes to heaven. Is that an evil? Okay. So we have to be careful with that. So for instance, the book of Job. All these things happened to him, but what happened to Job at the end? He saw God. And he's praised throughout generations. So in heaven, do you think Job is saying to God, how did you do that to me? Do you understand? Okay. So, therefore, therefore, suffering and pain and loss are not necessarily an evil. Just as wealth and health and gain are not necessarily a blessing. As I said earlier, we need to detach ourselves from what we perceive as good and we perceive as evil because we most of the time do not have the intended end in mind. You're correct. In Leviticus, it is a natural covenant. It is not a supernatural covenant yet. It is a covenant addressed to people who will understand things physically and therefore God meets them right there. Christ will take all that and lift it up. The Beatitudes. Blessed are you when people persecute you and utter all kinds of false lies about you. Rejoice and be glad. Well, blessings like these who need curses. Do you see it? Yeah. The saints, so many of them suffered but rejoiced in God. Yeah. That's the sort of change that happens in us when we walk with God. Whether He reigns or whether He shines the sun on us, blessed be the name of the Lord. Yes. Very good question. How is suffering not evil if suffering itself is a consequence of sin? Because we judge if something is evil or not by its intended consequence, by its, by its result, by the fruit that it produces. Uh, totally. Thank you. Absolutely. In fact, Christ in the, in the scriptures, St. Paul himself said of Christ that he despised the pain. Right? Let's be very clear here. Yeah. So suffering is so, not so only b- bear with me. Yeah. Bear with me. He despised the pain. Yep. Okay? We we're not debating that. That's an absolute truth. There's no question about that. That destruction, death, suffering, the evil that we see around us are all a consequence of sin. We agree. We're all, we are, anybody disagrees with that? We're on the same page. But here's what God did. And that's the scandal of the cross. He took these very things 
and turn them into the royal path to heaven. What does that mean? It means that when I look at suffering, I am able to see something beyond the suffering. And it is that thing which I see beyond the suffering which gives me hope and joy. And that's why I'm telling you, you judge something by its intended end. Because I can give you the opposite. Let's take somebody who lives a life with no suffering. He has every pleasure he wants, he wishes to receive. Every one of them. He lacks nothing. Neither in health, nor in wealth, nor in any necessity or desire of life. He has it all. According to the Beatitudes. Where will he be in heaven? He will be, no, no, not necessarily. This guy may act properly. It's still possible for him to act according to God's law. It is possible for him to share what he has with others. I am not necessarily implying that someone like this will not make it happen, ever. But Jesus was very clear. It is easier for a camel to go right through the needle than for rich men to attain heaven. But let's assume he does attain heaven. Where would he be in the order of glory? He would be among the last. He would be, be the poorest. That is the scandal of the cross. That's precisely why the Jews told him, come down from the cross and we'll believe you. Because they just did not want that. And that's every struggle that every Christian, this is the struggle every Christian must face. That in suffering, there is this richness that is hidden. It is the hidden treasure beyond the scandal that we see in suffering. So is suffering a pleasant experience? Never. Is it something that God intended from the beginning? No. But through His mercy, He took that very thing that was our yoke that the devil imposed on us and made it our victory. That's what we're talking about here. And I agree with you that the best way is to share what we have with others. Nevertheless, if somebody refuses to see in the suffering that comes his way a gift from God, he's missing on the grace that is hidden beyond the suffering. And we have to be able to help him see that. Before they alleviate the sufferings of others. Before, before. Because the fundamental truth is that you and me and Mother Teresa and all the saints of the world can do diddly squat without God's grace. We do nothing. God does everything. Therefore, the very first thing we must do is worship. Back to what we were saying earlier. It is only when we worship God in truth and in the spirit that we receive the grace required to do what we must. We are channels of grace. We transmit what we receive. And through us, mysteriously, the Holy Spirit bears fruit. That's what we do. So, remember, the greatest doers in this world are those souls who are locked up in our monasteries. They do more than all of us put together, yet they feed nobody. St. Teresa, little child Jesus, is the patron saint of missionaries, and she was a cloistered nun. St. Joseph is the universal patron of the Holy Church, and he did nothing. He fed nobody. Be careful. The fundamental act we do is to worship God and love Him. And He does everything else in us. Now, when we do that, bear with me. When we do that, and only when we do that, 
that God fructifies everything and make us capable to go to our brother and love our brother because we see in him Christ. Only when we worship in spirit and in truth. That's the right um, structure of every Christian act. Worship first because we have to love God first. Then turn around and then do what you must to your brother. This is how we do it. And that's what we're trying to say over and over again. This century is taken over by activism. We think that if we go and feed the whole world, we save them. In fact, St. Paul tells us otherwise. You can go save all the, hung- all the world. You can raise the dead. You can, you can feed the poor. But if you, have, you haven't had love, charity, you have nothing. First, we have to love God. And we've forgotten how to do that in the liturgy today. Then you can go and then do all these other things. Only when God asks you to. That's the proper order. That's the order of the liturgy. Liturgy comes first. Liturgy turns the world. Liturgy feeds the hungry. Liturgy does everything. We have to worship God first. Then He does everything through us. Yes. So what would you do? St. Gemma Gilgani, who in her entire life never committed one sin, saw her God and angel since they were little, received the stigmatas, wanted to be a nun. God prevented her from. Because in her frustration, there was more glory to be had than in the satisfaction of that act. So sometimes God may frustrate you from what you want to do, going to Mass every day, because sometimes we can go to Mass every day for our own satisfaction and not necessarily for God's worship. You're with me? So I am not saying right now which is the right way to do it. You do a novena to St. Joseph. You ask him, help me find a work. If that's the only work that comes your way, God answer your prayer. You trust him. I am like you. I would love to go to Mass every day. I have a job that is, a, that is 60 miles away from where I live. I can almost never do it. All right. Praise be to God. That's what he wants right now. Yeah? Yes. Last question. How much prayer is enough? No, exactly. Uh, St. Teresa, Mother Teresa has, as a rule... One hour of adoration in the morning for her sisters. That's a pretty good rule if you can follow it. If you can't, you offer what you can. The most important thing is that you have to have a yearning for prayer. And if that yearning is frustrated, praise be to God. But you have that yearning. Right? So you have to pray, but obviously you have to get up and do what you must. Right? That's all. Take it. No, no. In fact, you're enjoying yourself, not enjoying yourself. This is a gift from God. This is like rain and breeze and wind. Sometimes he gives you this enjoyment, sometimes takes it away. Sometimes you think you're in paradise, sometimes you think you're in the desert. You persevere in your prayer because God wants you to be faithful. Right? As to the length of your prayer, you take it to God and you ask. And then he will, one way or the other, give you the answer. Yeah? Well, that's another good rule. That's a very good one. Pray as much time as you spend to eat. If you're a fast eater, I don't know about that. You might want to spend a little bit more time. All right. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.